0: allowing you to become the architect of your own reality. Join Dr. Karen Curry for Elevating Your Life Script, a weekend workshop where you transform your life by crafting intentional narratives, May 24 through 26 at the Omega Institute in Rhinebeck, New York. Learn more at eomega.org slash thrive.
1: So listeners, hello, how are you today? I hope that all is well in your soul. If you need to pause and take a little break, take that deep breath into your heart, just do it today. Just make sure that you take time for you. I talk about that so often. It's so important that we pause and tune into ourselves, do a little check-in. And if we need to take some deep breaths, we need to reconnect to our heart, allow yourself the time to do that. It's essential. So I have to tell you, you're going to just drop into this conversation with me and Dina Merriam. We're going to be talking about her book, To Dance with Dakinis in Search of Self. Dina is one of the people that founded the Global Peace Initiative of Women in 2002. And that was an organization that was you know, chaired by a multi-faith group of women spiritual leaders. She is just such a kind, amazing soul. I think you're just going to love listening to her and learning about different ways that we can truly resource ourselves and contribute to having a better world, to creating a better world together. So that's what this conversation is about. It might stretch your mind a little bit. So I'm excited to bring you this conversation with Dina Miriam.
0: In a world that can be challenging and at times unpredictable, it's hard to find moments to focus on what you need. Join Stephanie James on The Spark as she guides you to use your inner flame to ignite your best life. As a best-selling author, psychotherapist, transformational life coach, and international show host, Stephanie is dedicated to helping you create a life that takes you, your goals, and your passions to the next level, so you can live a life that is fully lit up and fully alive. She believes that your life is meant to be a beautiful expression of the things that light you up, that by living your dreams, you give permission to others to do the same. Are you ready to feel alive and inspired to fuel your dreams and put a fire behind your desires let's ignite a spark in one another that will illuminate the world the spark with your host stephanie james starts now
1: so i'm excited to talk to you about this book and your life and well oh you know all of my books
2: deal with this this one theme of really who we are and to look at ourselves as as um, having multiple lives where we get to work out things. We can't do everything in one life. We can't fulfill all our desires or aspirations. So we have other opportunities in which we can finish things that were left incomplete. And so, you know, these experiences come to me and I share them. But when I'm writing, when I'm writing, I'm totally in that time period. It's like time becomes elastic and I'm back up until this point, I've been writing about the past. I'm beginning now to write about the future because it's a similar process, actually. you can Just as you can see into the past, you can see into the future. You can see probabilities, likelihoods, this thing might unfold. But up until now, I've looked at the past and looked, of course, multiple lifetimes to see how this law of cause and effect operates and how we can work with it not just be subject to it but actually be a partner and work with this law so we can shape our future
1: well and dina when when did you first learn about or experience you know this life after life if you will
2: i, I was i was born with and with a um accepting it as a reality um i was born into a secular jewish family so it, it was not coming from any teaching. It was just something that I felt to be true. And when I was in my 20s, I began to have glimpses. It always comes to me through people that I meet, either through people or places. But early on, it was through people that I meet would meet, would meet that I would feel an instant connection with. And then I would begin to have these memories come back to me But it wasn't until I was in my 40s, I explained this in my first book, My Journey Through Time, where I began having uh, dreams. And often things come to me through dreams. The dreams of a certain house. I would find myself in that house and feel it was like a house that I was forced to leave because there was a lot of sadness associated with it. And after I began having these dreams for months, um, things began to happen. Somebody came into my life who was from that previous birth. And I began to have the memories. So at first it was quite destabilizing because I had to function. I was a divorced mother of two kids, had a job, and I had to hold it all together. And here I was reliving a past birth. Um, and so I tell people that I don't, I wouldn't advise people to go digging <laughs> because if it doesn't come to you naturally, then this it's a, it's you, you don't need to know. Um, you, you can find out a lot about your past just through introspection. You don't need to know all the details. And I think it came to me just so that I can share. Uh, and so because I think we're at a turning point where people are beginning to accept this, a larger, larger group of people, because quite a few people have intuitions, yeah. uh, have have glimpses. They, they say, I know I knew this person. I know I've got stuff to work out with this person. So I think that's relatively common. Only you don't normally pay much attention to it, uh, but I think it, it's a it's a um, it would be a big change in our collective awareness if we all understood this, because it would change our relationship with death, which of course is the big unknown for most people.
1: Yes, there's so much fear that people have around death. You know, people sometimes, as you well know, they can't fully enjoy living because they're so afraid of dying
2: also helps you deal with suffering better, because you you know that nothing is arbitrary. It's not just accident, oh, that person's going to have a terrible disease, or that person's going to die in a car. Nothing is arbitrary, and there's no judge up there judging us. And I, I think the great misperception is that this law of karma, cause and effect, is a law of punishment and reward, and it's not that at all. It's learning. It's a, you know, it's a matter of if you knock your head against the wall a few times, at some point you stop doing that because you associate the pain with the knocking. And so we learn that if we do certain things, it will bring back um, an undesirable result. And so we stop doing those things uh, eventually. It may take you know several lifetimes, um, but we learn if we hurt somebody, we're not going to feel good and we're going to want to make up for it in some way. Whether you're conscious of that or whether you repress that, um, whatever ill we cause, we want to make up for because our nature is that way, even though we might repress it.
1: Yes. Thank you so much for describing that or defining that a little bit more deeply, because I think that really is the misconception that karma is punishment and reward somehow. If we're good, we have good karma. If we're bad, we have bad karma, or that we carry this... Bad karma from our last life.
2: You know, I, I, there was a person close to me who was a, a, um, a mean person, and yet she had everything. She had wealth. She had a wonderful, devoted husband. She had wonderful children. She lived into her nineties with not a day of ill health. And you might say it doesn't make sense. She, she was not generous. She was mean, <laughs> but. I always say she had a vacation life. Did she have a lot of growth and learning? Maybe not. Whatever she did in her past gave her this vacation life where she could just sail through. But she'll have a future where she'll have to work through a lot of those um, hurts that she caused to people.
1: Yeah, and I'm curious about that, Dina. Do Do you feel like we continue to evolve through lifetimes? Sure. We continue to, again, it may take a
2: few lifetimes to learn a certain lesson because some people learn more quickly than others. But at some point, it's a waking up process. It's becoming more aware of of how to behave in such a way that we produce good effects, that we don't create harmful effects on ourselves because there's a lot of that as well where we we don't, you know, we have poor self-esteem. I think a lot of people struggle with that poor self-esteem uh, and don't have confidence in themselves. And slowly, bit by bit, we have to wake up from that,
1: yes. You know, I'm a psychotherapist, and so I see that in my office on a daily basis. There's this almost universal message that people have, whether they're, A CEO of a company or a world-renowned brain surgeon or the guy that comes in that runs, you know, the engine car on the railway, there's this sense of I'm not good enough.
2: So we have to look, I mean, I am a big believer in some form of spiritual practice, meditation or whatever. Um, but I also think, and I learned early on, I've been meditating since I was 20, that introspection is sort of a companion to meditation, to really introspect about your life and to and to look neutrally at yourself and, and see where you're not living up to what you would like to be. I know that I found myself, about 25 years ago, founding an organization called the Global Peace Initiative for Women. I got involved in the interfaith movement and found that in the late 1990s, that there were no women in leadership positions. It was all men's voice. So I said, okay, here's where I can contribute. And I sought out women um, leaders and created platforms from the UN and et cetera, other places. And I wondered why I was doing that, because I was never particularly active in the feminist movement. I said, so what's driving me? Because uh, I sort of found myself, everything sort of came together where I was put in this position without working, without consciously saying, this is what I'm going to do create a global platform for women. But as I looked back on my lives, a few of them previously, I saw that I had fa- I felt that I had no voice as a woman, that I, I had no vo- control over my life. My life was determined by a father or a husband or. The men in my life were very much shaping what I could do and what I couldn't do. Of course, we're talking 100, 200, 300 years ago. And I found that what I was able to do in this life completely healed that. It's just a non-issue for me. So it shows how something, a feeling that's been with me for several different lifetimes of not being able to find my own voice as a woman and determine my own life, finally found its completion in my current life. And so that's done for me. Uh, And as I've traveled the world, gathering women in different parts of the world, I see it's still a very common feeling in in many parts of the world, um, where women don't have a voice and they just don't feel empowered in any way. Uh, And so I was able to create spaces where they could feel empowered. So it's sort of a completion and it shows you how you can work towards something or have life after life of feeling the, uh, 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 certain experiences and then you have an opportunity to address it and to heal it.
1: So beautiful. So powerful. You know, Dina, I'm curious too. You graduated from Columbia University. When you were in that academia life, was that present there? Where, did you feel that male dominated culture.
2: Absolutely. I mean I I it was in the 70s and I did my graduate work, I guess it was my late 70s, mid 80, and it was still very much that that way. Uh, I mean I did undergraduate work at Barnard where it was very different because it was just beginning of co ed um, but it was it was really a women's institution. And then I did graduate work at Columbia and I and I was um sort of committed to going on I was going to go on for my PhD and look for an academic position but I realized I couldn't do that and work to support my kids and do my spiritual practice and so I I left academia but it's not that there were women present it's the leadership it's the shaping of of the dialogue of course that's changed so much now 20 30 it's 40 yeah. years but even in 20 years since I um, was involved in the interfaith world, so much has changed that I backed out of it. It's like, I don't need to do that anymore. Other people are now doing it. There are women in leadership positions. By and large, it's not an issue. I mean, in some corners, some religious groups are still very uh, 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 ambiguous about women's leadership, but by and large, it's not a, 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 such an issue anymore.
1: Wonderful. Yeah, that we can start seeing, And and I hear about this so much, you know, this, rise of the divine feminine that we're in that era now
2: for sure because my 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 practices from the yogic tradition we talk about the divine mother freely i mean it's the goddesses right but when i first uh, had an interfaith uh, dialogue and there was an evangelical and we were on a panel i said something about the divine mother and he and subsequently i've remained friends with him subsequently he began talking about the divine mother and the same thing, I had a Catholic nun with me. And, and in this dialogue on, on the Divine Mother, she said, I, 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 I don't know how to address this. But then she began, she said, I can find it within my tradition. And she began to talk about it. So I think there's been a sea change in, in the way we talk about the, the feminine divine energy, the goddess. It's an ongoing theme for me because in most of my books, even in the last one, To Dance with Dakinis, I've always had female teachers and divine guides in the female form. Uh, That's been my lineage going way back. So it's something I came to early in this life. And one of the reasons that I was drawn to Hinduism was because of that. You know, I couldn't find it in the Abrahamic tradition. So it's like, well, I don't belong here.
1: And when did that start for you, this passion, if you will, for Hinduism and and Tibet as well?
2: Hinduism came first, and that was, I guess, around 1970. I found my guru. He had already left the body, Yogananda, Paramahansa Yogananda. But he left a book called Autobiography of a Yogi. And that was a great inspiration for me. And I wanted to learn meditation. And again, if I look back at my last two, three lives, two lives in particular, I had exposure to Eastern thought, um, but there was no way for me to learn meditation. You know, it was just reading something here or there, um, but there was no way to learn. And so when when I, f- at the age of 20, when I read on about a it yogi, it's like, now I can learn. <laughs> and of course, today it's everywhere. You know, you don't have to look far to find a practice that suits you. So, So I took it very seriously because I'd been searching for so long through many lifetimes and i and i know a lot of people you know try this and that and they kind of flit around but i found a practice that worked for me uh and i have stayed with that practice it's a it's a form of pranayama called kriya yoga and i've stayed with that and and it's been a wonderful gift you know and i've seen over the span of this time decades how the whole attitude toward meditation has changed
1: yeah absolutely I've seen that as well. I've meditated for 26 years now myself. And I I even remember then when I started, sometimes you would even just say the word meditation. There was like almost this woo woo, you know, like, oh my gosh, you know, <laughs> I, I don't want to go there. That came later for me.
2: I found myself surrounded by Westerners who were Tibetan practitioners of Tibetan Buddhism a dear friend, my assistant who came to work with me, another woman who was working with me. They were Danish, but all practicing Tibetan Buddhism. But it didn't open anything in me until I had a grandson. And my grandson, when he was a few years old, told me that he had died in the invasion of the Chinese invasion of Tibet. And he remembered so many things. And he started, you know, doing practices to Paul Lama, who I didn't know about then. And he only could go to sleep by listening to the monks chanting. Uh, and so he told me so many, so many things. Uh, uh, I took him to see Lamas, and he would talk to them about strategy and what, what the Tibetans, their strategy during the invasion. He was seven or eight at that time. And he also had a deep, deep connection to India and to uh, Shiva. And then at a certain point, a few years ago, my own memories of Tibet opened. And I found myself in 12th century Tibet. And that's
1: how the book came about. Well, and let's talk about this book. I'm going to show this on YouTube. We're going to have a little clip on YouTube so people can see this beautiful book, To Dance with the Dakinis in Search of Self. So tell us a little bit about Yes. What what started coming through, and and then there was this, you know, this motivation, this urge to write this book. What what came through that started this process?
2: I have the last many years. I mean, initially, my organization was involved in peace dialogues, and we went all over Israel, Palestine, Iraq, Afghanistan, and then at a certain point around two thousand eight, we shifted to climate change, and and began to to. Um, Feel the urgency of talking about the earth, and I have written the book, The Untold Story of Sita, which goes back many millennia, and it showed that at that time the consciousness was very different. We call it the Treta Yuga, a higher age, where where there was harmony between man and the natural world, where you could interact with the natural world and felt a part of it, not separate and then over the course of many millennia we've become so separate from it that we don't even regard it as as living you know we 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 you know can can destroy species without another thought really destroy forests without a thought and so we've gone to such an extreme of disassociation from nature that we're on the path to destruction so this has been a theme with me for a long time now and i often talk about what when I because I work with a lot of young ecologists, you know, you got to fall in love with the earth again. It's not just a matter of science, you got to fall in love with the earth. And I've had dreams of whales and other things. And so when I started having these memories of Tibet and I found myself as a follower of Bun, which really surprised me, but didn't surprise me. Bon is the indigenous religion of Tibet, very nature based. Like all the old religions, is is the same. The Ve- ancient Vedic religion also is very based on, you know, the rivers, the rivers are goddesses, the mountains, Lord Shiva. So I found myself torn between Buddhism, which was part of my heritage, and the Bon tradition. And of course, Tibetan Buddhism is, a, is an integration, which I discovered. I mean, I discovered so many things through the writing of this book. I discovered the history of Tibet uh I came to understand much deeply the whole ethos and spirit of Tibet. But the integration, because they don't disregard the deities. You know, when you think of Buddhism, especially um, uh, uh, Theravadan Buddhism, and what's become popular today, the whole mindful, you know, the uh, Vipassana, there's no discussion of the, the cosmic forces. It's about how to control your mind, really, which is part of it, part of the story. <laughs> Certainly. But Tibetan Buddhism, because of its bone lineage, preserves that understanding of the cosmic forces and how the cosmic forces interact with us, both the forces of nature, the water, you know, there were spirits in the water, in the trees, in the earth, in the air, and how they interact with us, and the cosmic forces that sort of maintain the balance and uh, uh, functions of the universe, which we call the deities, but they're the cosmic forces.
1: Well, and so what are Dakinis, to dance with the Dakinis when you say that? what What's the definition well, of that?
2: Well, the, the story is really of a, a young woman who's, and then an older woman through her life, who is searching. I mean, she then remembers her previous birth, and then we follow her into her next birth. And she's um, not particularly awakened. And yet she's searching and she has this teacher. Uh, and then when she remembers her past, this great woman being who comes to her, who is Dakini. And we, we count her past history with the, the Dakini where she wants to be with the Dakini. Who are Dakinis? Dakinis are sort of enlightened or, or, or celestial figures, mostly women figures, beings who sometimes appear on earth. And dakini can be loosely uh, used as a yogini, as as a woman aspirant or a woman sage, Uh, but it also means these celestial figures who can appear on earth for a period of time. And at the time that this was referring to, it was the time when the ice was melting. We've had another period not so long ago, 12,000 years ago, when the glaciers melted and made much more of Earth habitable for humans. So human population was able to uh, expand. And that was a, a huge change in terms of um, an epoch for, for the human history. But you can see it as what made the what made the ice change. Uh, clearly cosmic forces were involved. So I envisioned it as the Dakinis coming to dance on the ice to help to, to melt the ice through their love, so that so that the human population could have a, a more friendly environment to, to grow in. And so that's the story of this little girl who sees her mother, who's a dakini, dancing on the ice to melt the ice and form rivers and lakes, because Tibet is a place of sacred lakes. Just like India is a place of the sacred rivers, Tibet is a place of the sacred lakes. And I didn't know that before. I mean, I, as I said, I, I remembered so much and learned so much, um, but the lakes, just like the rivers in India, are feminine. The mountains are the masculine. The lakes in Tibet are considered the abode of the goddesses, and the surrounding mountains are the de- are the gods. So, to dance with Dakinis is to evolve ourselves so we can be part of that, um, of that world that helps shape the physical uh, universe.
1: So in this book, is is this also your own journey? Does it parallel your own journey in some ways? Yes. Talk about your own dance with bikinis.
2: You know, I I always say that uh, because my books usually include stories from other books, I think it's hard to segregate one life. And so what appears in one life had its origins in another life. So into Dance with Dakinis, there's a story of a false teacher, and this woman falls under the sway of this false teacher, ends up giving away everything she has. But that's not the beginning of that story. That's sort of the last episode. She has to go back into a previous life. So she wants to find out why he's got such a hold on her. Who is this man? She's vulnerable. Her husband has died. She's alone. Her kids are grown. She's vulnerable. And She's lonely. And yet this man comes into her life and takes hold of her mind and she can't resist whatever he asks. And of course he wants to control her. Who is this man? She wants to know. Why can I say, can't I say no to him? Why do I do whatever he asks? This is not an uncommon situation. We have this today with cult figures, right? It's a situation that come again and again, humans are subjected to a charismatic figure Sometimes they come in the political field, like a Hitler, a charisma, or we have some of those today, charismatic figure that have people blindly going, yeah, yeah, no matter what he says, Yeah, this is what's her situation. And, and that situation stayed with, with me so much that I have been ever on guard for those kind of people. I really, I've learned my lesson, let's put it that way, because I was brought down into the pits. She reaches the pits, she's given everything away, she doesn't know what else to do, she has nothing. So she prays, I Just, I just wanna be free of this man. And then she gets saved and this Dakini comes and brings her back into the past, her immediate past, where she sees, uh, she has many experiences in that life, which we could talk about actually. Was, and she sees that he was chasing her even then. But that's not the beginning. She has to go back further, several lifetimes further, to find out why he's so obsessed with her. And she makes amends. And they get healed. That relationship gets healed. And she's not sorry. She's given him everything, and she's okay with it. She's okay with it because she she repaired a broken relationship. And that was important. She was free. And so the dance with Tikinis. The Dakini mother helped free her from that terrible guilt and burden that she'd carried over many, many centuries.
1: That's such an interesting thought, Dina. I'm really, I'm, my mind is just kind of spinning, thinking about this ability to heal what's going on now through going back, as you're saying, through past lives and accessing maybe the source of the angst or the source of what is trapped inside of us right now?
2: I can do it on a personal level. What drew me into my work at the Global Peace Initiative was how do you do it on a collective level? My first dialogues were in 2002 in Israel and Palestine during the Intifada. And I sat with Israelis and Palestinians and I and I said, how can we unknock this? There's fear on both sides, there's anger on both sides. And, uh, you know, at first, the first few dialogues, it was like a competition of suffering. Who suffered more? And then eventually the people who participated got beyond that and they could actually hear the suffering of the other party. And that's essential to really hear the suffering of the other party. But I realized that unless you know the history of, of, of each person, who, who were the Israelis before they were born as Israelis? Who were the Palestinians before they were born as Palestinians? Unless you can see into the past, which a master can do, you can't really understand. You can understand the surface issues. Yes, it's about land and, you know, you can understand the surface issues. But to unknot it is far more complex. And I, you know, in all these years, I don't know the answer to that. To unknot collective. I mean, you look here at the U.S., Uh, My Guruji once said the U.S. had positive karma and negative karma. The positive karma was welcoming the poor from everywhere. You know, there was no hierarchy, no nobles, no lords. Anybody could come, and if you worked hard, you could make it. That was the good karma. The bad karma was what we did to the nations who were already living here, and slavery. And you can see that those shadows, it's shadow work, right? Those Mm. shadows are still with us. How many, you know, 200 years later, we're still dealing with those shadows. And so how you are not this karma, collective karma, I think is a very complex issue.
1: I, I hear you. And and I, you know, right now with what's going on with Israel and the Palestines, how would you even begin from your experience? When, when you talk about the collective, I really do believe that our thoughts hold energy, Our emotions hold energy. And so when we're holding a vision of peace, we're actually, we're sending that, you know, you you could talk about quantum physics, that thoughts are things. So it really does matter when we do that, if we can do nothing else besides hold a vision of peace. What, What it's actually reminding me of, Dina, is when I first started meditating, I was pregnant with my daughter who's about to turn 26 and i would get this very interesting visualization would come to me this image at the end of my practice daily for months and interestingly it was all of these people in kind of an arid deserty situation and they were all looking up at this huge light and they all had machine guns like they had guns and as they saw this light in the sky Everyone put it was like everyone was in awe and put their machine guns down. And it, to me, I, I don't know what it means, and I feel like it's so significant that maybe that's if that's the one thing we can do that we start visualizing whatever that light is, that connected essence that's in all of us, whether we call it you know, the God seed or higher consciousness, whatever that is, to me that that is maybe the hope that is the piece where we can. Say okay, there is something I can contribute to this, because it's really easy to feel overwhelmed and helpless in this situation.
2: What I found in the in the last years of my working, I mean, I worked in Israel and Palestine for several years, and then shifted my attention to Iraq and then at Sudan and Afghanistan. But when I was working there, what I what I discovered, and this is. You know, maybe fifteen years ago, was that the meditation movement was growing in Israel tremendously, both Buddhist and Hindu. There were Israeli Swamis, and and meditation was really taking hold, which was such a positive thing because it changes your outlook, right? And I found a small meditation group in in Ramallah as well, and there was one Palestinian I became very close with. I'm still close with her, and all she longed for was India, teachings of India. It's like, get me out of this knot and give me teachings that, that have nothing to do with history. You know, I don't want to be locked in history. And so I, I feel that, that that is a solution, but it's also it's like after the massacre in Israel, the, the the head of Iran tweeted, now he's the religious head of Iran as well, Khomeini tweeted, Israel is gone. Now Okay, that's an energy. That's a thought you're putting out. You're putting out a thought for the destruction of Israel. You don't think every Israeli is going to pick up on this? They still want us gone. They still want to destroy us. So, you know, it's like, how do we undo that thinking? I think the old guard's got to go. The old guard, sorry, your time is up. We need new energy. And I've been to Iran. And Obama's, Obama's last year, I took a delegation of spiritual teachers to Iran. Uh, Buddhist, yogis, a few Christians. Don't think I had a rabbi with us. And what I found was the interest in meditation and in yoga underground is growing tremendously. In India, in Rishikesh, I found many is, is Iranians. So this is my hope, that there is a future generation. Uh, and I have good friends with an, uh, someone from Tehran, a few people, who just blot out what the government says. They're interested in meditation. And uh, you see Buddhas in, in the, some of the shops because China's the big trading partner. So so it's the old guard has to go, you know, how quickly they can go, I don't know. But it's time for them to move on in their own evolution, you know, to move on in their own evolution and let a new crop of people with a different mindset come and That's the only hope I see. Yes. Some is true in our country, by the way.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's here at home as well. You know, it's and it's it is that and maybe that is the charge to each individual, because it has to be our own individual work first. It's that thing of, you know, when you do your own healing work, then you become a clearer conduit for more love and healing to come through you into the world.
2: It's hard not to be reactive. You know, Uh, um, when you hear absurd things being said, it's hard not to be reactive. But I think that's our work is to realize that we are evolving. I mean, we're not devolving, we're not going backwards. We are evolving individually and collectively. But you know, evolution takes place over long periods of time. So you can't judge by 10, 10 years. I mean, we're talking about I, you and I were just, we see a sea change over 50 years ago, you know, in terms of meditation, the able to people understanding karma, even remembering their past birth. Sea change. And in another 50 years, there'll be another sea change. And so we just have to make sure we don't destroy ourselves in the time. In the meantime, while we're evolving.
1: Yes. Yes. And and so what can people do? You know, you're you're talking about meditation. Are there other things that you would invite people to practice to help with their own evolution and the evolution of our planet?
2: think introspection and to look at your, to look at where you're reacting. You know, I've started writing a book, I'm in the middle of it actually, called Memories of a Future Life, and it projects 200 years in the future. I see my own trajectory, but it's harder to see the collective. But I, when I work with young people in their 30s, I say to them, you are the creator of your future. There's nobody creating your future but you. You know, your past created your current situation. Just know that What Your many pasts, not just one past, your many pasts created the conditions, which are the best conditions for growth for you now. Everything that you have in your life now is the best condition for you to grow. Look at it and see what you need to do, how you need to grow. But at the same time, you need to project into the future. What is the future you want for yourself? And be real, not I'll be a billionaire because billionaires are are not happy people for the most part. You know, it's like, what do you need? To to take the next step in your own growth, and collectively we need to do the same thing. What kind of world do we want to see for our grandchildren? I mean, and we need to be specific about it. Not just oh, a more peaceful and a, you know caring world. What does that mean? We need to be so. In the writing of this book, and there's so many dystopian visions out there. And I say to myself, if we knew the power of our thought, why are we creating this dystopian future for ourselves? Thought has power. Thought manifests as reality. Yes. So let's create a positive future for the human community. And have, And what are the steps to do that? Well, certainly a big thing is changing our relationship with the natural world. And then having more compassion and coming to understand uh, the suffering of people. And I think the future will be much less, there'll be much less inequality. You know, there there won't be these extreme, you know, people with $100 billion and then people who can't even eat. That won't be because that will be considered to be immoral. How can we have lived like that? You know, so I think things like that will change in the future. And we have to work in our thoughts before it manifests. Things first come together in the conceptual realm before they can manifest and there's still not a lot of clarity about where we want to get to, what kind of world we want.
1: So really being able to start visualizing it. And as you're saying, being succinct in that visualization. I always tell my clients, you know, if, if you're ambiguous about what you want, you're going to get ambiguous results. So to really get clear about what that looks like.
2: Yeah. So, for example, the world that I'm envisioning, um, money is not an issue. There's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a credit. So your work provides you with a certain amount of credit that provides your food. So everybody has to contribute to society. And even meditation is a contribution to society. Uh, taking care of an older person is a contribution to society. So everybody contributes in the way that they're capable of contributing to society. In exchange, their needs are provided for.
1: Yeah, I love that.
2: That's one example of a vision that we can hold for how society can work in in, in a in a, a better way.
1: Yes. And you know, one of the things that you had said earlier about how we're so disconnected from nature. I'm here in Colorado right now and I'm looking outside my window and it's just beautiful, brilliant, on fire leaves, you know, just brilliant yellows and my husband and I went this morning and took a walk down by this beautiful creek with our dogs, and being with the smells of fall, the crunch of the leaves beneath our feet, being able to be with that, you know seeing a mallard duck and his mate. And I mean, just all this beautiful thing. I think in order to really remember, I guess, to me, it's almost remembering our connection with nature, we have to be out in it. It's hard to discount nature when you go and touch it when you put your bare feet in the grass
2: you know science has shown a connection between mental health and bird song and we've lost a billion birds in the north in uh, north america in um, the last few decades so so you're right um, i mean i think i think the cities is making people flip out in many ways all of the all of the mental illness that we've seen it's because people are they live in concrete jungles and they, 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 they can't touch the earth. They can't connect with the earth. They can't hear the rivers and the, and the birdsong. I mean, all the things that keep us balanced. Uh, we are a part of nature and the, and, and the degree to which we, we isolate ourselves. It's not a healthy thing in any way, physically or mentally.
1: Yes. And the thing I always remember too, Dina, is that as we go into nature, nature absorbs negative ions that's so when we go, point. yeah, when it's like, we are so interconnected that when we go into nature, it helps heal us. Yeah. I mean, I think earth itself has healing
2: vibrations and, and particularly when people are, you know, I think there's a lot of anger on the planet now and a lot of fear. And one of the ways, you know, we talked about meditation, we talked about introspection. I think being in nature is the third pillar you know, uh, uh, I think it's essential. Yeah, no matter what the weather is, it's essential to be out to be out there and to be to be companions with with all that is. You know, uh, to to reinforce our companionship, our kinship with all that is. That's a very healing. And and for people who are depressed, you know, I mean, the more time you spend outside, the, the more you're going to feel healed.
1: So I love these three pillars I think that's great meditation introspection and time in nature
2: the companionship with people that you love i mean i think one of the great lessons in all my books is the power of love i mean love is the force that keeps the universe together that was one of the messages that came through in, in the in the book uh, uh, this woman's teacher keeps trying to get her to understand love. Love is not clinging. Love is not attachment. I mean, most of what we think of as human love is sort of mingled with attachment and clinging and having needs met. Uh, but loving is a pu- love is a pure energy um, that that uplifts. And the universe is filled with love. Even if you have no partner in your life, no children, um, you can tune into that love, cosmic love that is all around.
1: I I love that because I, I truly believe that not only is it all around, it is within us. And that is to me, the definition of the spark, you know, my show being igniting the spark, we already have that spark within us, that divine spark. And so we can tune in to that love that it's like, it transcends circumstances, time, difficulties, exactly what you're saying.
2: That's the key to me. When I look at religious leaders who are angry and talk about killing, I say to myself, well, then they're they're not a religious leader. I mean that's politics, you know yeah. the, the, the the barometer is how much you are living in that love space. you know, all religions, all spiritual traditions, that is that is the the key. If you're living in that love space, you're in, in, in a high vibration. If you're not, don't call yourself a religious leader.
1: Yes. Yes. Well, Dina, I can't believe we're we're already out of time. The book is To Dance with Dakinis in Search of Self, Dina, Miriam. First of all, how can people get a hold of you? How can they find out more about you or purchase your book?
2: I have a um, Facebook page, which is called Dina Miriam Writes, one word, lowercase, Dina Miriam Writes. I do book readings from time to time on that. My organization, the Global Peace Initiative Women, has a website, gpiw.org. So in terms of the work, it's gpiw.org. In terms of my books, it's Dina Miriam Writes. The books are on Amazon, and they're in bookstores, too.
1: Wonderful. Wonderful. So as we wrap up today, what would be an essential message that you want to make sure you leave with the listeners?
2: The message is that we all have a role to play in shaping our world. And thought is energy. Thought is power. The more we are awake in our own being, in our love center, Um, It doesn't matter if you remember your past or not. The main thing is being in your love center and feeling love, not just for others, but for the earth, for everything that is, because the earth needs our love now as much as anybody else does. Um, All the species, the birds, the whales, they all need our love now. They need to know that we care and that we are not disconnected from them that we know our connection with them the more you can be in that space sending loving vibrations to places of conflict uh, to help ease the anger and the fear and we all participate in that you know even if you think you have no power it's untrue we all each one of us has the power to change things to change our personal lives and to change our collective world society so let's enact that power by feeling the love and sending it out to all, all of the places in need and all of the beings in need.
1: Dina, thank you so much for being here. Such a joy Definitely. to talk wonderful with you. to talk to you. Take thank care. you. You as Take well. Take care, everyone. So what an interesting conversation. Dina, to, to be able to look at her, and I know as you're listening to this, you can't see her face, She is just very illuminated and just one of the most sweet, peaceful women that you could ever meet. She is living what she's talking about. Gina talked about these four pillars, introspection, meditation, connection with nature, and then really being connected to one another in this place of love as being these essential pillars of life. What an important message. And also that we're not hopeless in creating change in this world. I've had a lot of clients in my office lately talking about this conflict between Israel and Palestine and feeling very helpless to do anything about it and feeling really overwhelmed. And I think that was a powerful message in this interview is that we can be a part of the change. We can hold the vision of peace in our world. And send out that love and peace that it truly is a vibration, that those things are actually measurable. If you want to talk about scientific research and then the ability now that they can measure our thoughts, our feelings, and the energy that is radiated from those, that there really is a vibration that we send out. And so that is what helps to change things so that you can feel empowered within yourself. You can go within your own heart and connect to that spark that is in you, that is you. And from that place of love, as you're loving to yourself, as you're loving to those around you, you can send that same love out into the world and especially to places that need it, that have conflicts, that have, as she said, a lot of hate going on right now. They need our love. They need our healing energy. And so each one of us can help be contributors and help heal the world. You have been listening to Igniting the Spark with Stephanie James. Thank you for listening. You can find us on all podcast platforms. Make sure you subscribe and receive every episode. For more information about this show, my books, films, and events, Go to stephaniejames.world and ignite your best life.
0: What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation,